Welcome to Residential Tech Talks. I'm Jeremy Glowacki, Executive Editor of Residential Tech Today. On this week's podcast, Tom Doherty joins us from Palm Desert, California, where he is a director for HTSA Buying Group. If Cedia had the equivalent of a Disney Legends programmed for its founding pioneers, then Tom would be in its inaugural group. He is literally one of the people there at the beginning of the industry's premier trade association, Cedia Expo, and he's led an impressive career as an integrator and manufacturer culminating in his current role where his vision has brought the lighting category to the forefront of the industry, and now AI as one of the leading topics of the day. With plans for the third annual Lightapalooza conference, which he was a founder of as well with HTSA, um, recently announced, I thought it would be a great time to have Tom on to give us an update on the event and tell us why you won't want to miss the event this coming year. Tom Doherty, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks. Thanks. Thanks very much for having me. Great to be here. The Cedia Legends program. I think we should create that. I think it would be, I mean, we've got the Lifetime Achievement and we've got the uh, the other programs that, that are really great. Um, I'm, I'm yeah. fortunate to be a part of the uh you know fellow fellows yeah You're a fellow right yeah, yeah yeah so so i think i think we've probably got it covered but i do think that you know there there are there are a select few that are truly the legends and um lutron does that i think right that's uh sort of their they have a hall of they they uh had a hall of fame and i'm proud to say i was inducted in that inaugural lutron hall of fame uh that was 2009 so nice. all the Everything you're going to talk about is things that just happened eons ago for me. I'm a I'm an old man these days. I used to be one of the youngest in the crowds that I ran with, but now I, I I'm kind of AARP. You know, I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna tell some things because it's uh, it's 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 good to be just like authentic and real on these on these podcasts and. And in the end, it's probably just my dad listening anyway. But uh, when when <laughs> when I was told of your uh, your inaugural Cedia Expo, someone and I, I would tell you who it was if I could remember who said this. Said they were they remembered you being on the show floor, um, and I know it was just tabletops. It was pretty modest then, and all that. Maybe it was year two, and you were so happy with the the success of getting this thing off the ground that you're on the show floor, and you fired up a fired up a dube on the show floor and they said tom you can't uh, do that you've got to be professional this is like a real yeah. thing and and i know like it's legal now so we can talk about that it's statute of limitations and all that but uh, i just thought that was a funny image and, and 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 it seemed to be fitting if it if it were not true it, it at least was a good like legend kind of story <laughs> i i actually i don't recall that i would not deny that that didn't that that happened? I uh, <laughs> often I learned something later in life uh, when somebody said, "Tom, inner voice, inner mm. voice." You know, you know. <laughs> I was never afraid of uh, saying things and being exuberant, and especially you know, I was I was thirty then, and probably still behaving like I was eighteen or nineteen. <laughs> yeah. um, and uh, so, yeah, I was, uh, yeah, I remember those days and being really fired up about stuff like that. And, um, you know, when I, anyway, 
there's lots of stories, but I've always uh, thought of myself, um, you know, not as a rebel per se, but, you know, my early adult years were during um, the new wave punk rock scene. Yeah. So, you know, I went to those kinds of clubs and I was rebellious. Um, uh, my dad was a history professor, so I, you know, studied the American Revolution and, you know, the Renaissance and the things that happened in Europe. And and there's too long of a story, but the transition from those tabletops to full-blown expo was uh, inspired by me seeing slabs of the Berlin Wall and seeing those slabs in Dallas, Texas. When I was there, you know, it was, was going to be the third CDA Expo. I had gone to the, at the time it was called the Lowe's Anatole. Now it's the Hilton Anatole, where we coincidentally had the first light of Palooza a couple of years ago. But I was there for, in 1992. We just had the second one in San Francisco. This next one was going to be in Dallas. And we were really struggling as an organization. We were about out of business. We, we had negative cash. Um, and uh, I, my, myself and another gentleman who was on the board with me, we were doing calculations with the very earliest spreadsheets and the earliest computers. There's something called BusyCalc. And we were trying to project what it was going to take to get us in the in the green. And and the big part was uh, the next trade show can't just be ten by tens. We you know this industry is big enough now that <clears throat> we need these manufacturers to bring real boots so that we can charge real real show floor fees. And he said while I was there, you know, there's an eighty thousand square foot uh, convention thing connected to the hotel here. You want to go see it. And as we're walking over there, literally our slabs of the Berlin Wall had only fallen two years earlier. Mm -hmm. And that inspired me um, because that was a revolutionary thing. Mm -hmm. And uh, for that to fall, and I um, still had some punk rock, uh, new wave, uh, anti-establishment things in my veins. And uh, I committed to that space without telling my board. Oh, jeez. This is like May and not telling the management company, which was the Rebido group at the time, mm -hmm. pre Rayborn group. And that summer I was just on the phone calling Sony and Sonance and AMX and everybody. Hey, would you take, would you bring your Chicago CES trade show mm -hmm. booth to Cedia? And that is what kept the, the organization in business. Otherwise we were out of money and we were going to have to shut down, uh, you know, um, CES was circling to maybe acquire us like they ultimately did to, to uh, Para. And so I'm telling, I'm saying a bunch of stuff that a lot of people are watching this have zero idea yeah, about, no uh, but that, that literally happened. And, uh, and maybe I did it. I probably wouldn't have done it in Texas. If I did what you said, uh, it would have been in San Francisco. Sure. <laughs> there you go. You're a little scared. Don't mess with Texas, right? Back then. Um, or maybe even today. So uh, that that's that's amazing, and it, it makes me like have like panic sweat just thinking about that moment in time. That I mean, obviously you had your own things going on, but this was like a passion project for you, and and you would be really depressed to see it go away so quickly if it went bankrupt. Um, but it, it it's it's impressive, and that the vision that you've had 
all along. One of the things I love is that here you are, one of the don't take this the wrong way, elder statesman of the industry at this point, but you don't just look back. You'd look back and you reflect on nostalgia and, and good memories and the history. And it's great to see all that, but you're still looking forward, which is the most important thing. Cause I think you are still young at heart. So you're still seeing the future yeah. and what we need to be doing with whether it's lighting or AI is the current ones. But, um, you know, just a little bit more reflection though. Can you remind folks about, kind of where your career path took you um, as a business person outside of the Cedia founding um, part of it. You, you had, yeah. so, you, uh, you had a, a great business really focused on lighting control as one thing. You also were um, pretty involved in a, in a big manufacturing opportunity there for a while. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah. So I, so the foundation of my passion, uh, and life still is is about music and and film. You know, I love cinema. I love film. I love music. So um, I come from a pretty well-educated family. My dad, again, was a history professor. I got some uh, smart siblings. And I'm the oldest. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I was told I, I was on Ritalin as a kid, you know. <laughs> I remember, uh, you know, getting in lots of trouble in school by just screwing off. And uh, so um, I, I didn't do well in college. I, I dropped out uh, and for the opportunity to work at a hi-fi store. Mm. I just wanted to be, I wanted to be around the equipment. I, I didn't want to, I had no passion to, to be a salesman. But I just wanted to talk about hi-fi gear to people, to anybody that would listen. So I, as a lot of people know me, know how tenacious I can be about things. Um, I like to think about it as being passionate. Some people think of it about me, and I've been called a pest before um, because I just don't give up. So I finally, you know, uh, brought, you know, a hi-fi store down to their knees to hire me. And, uh, and so I started working at hi-fi stores and then, um, I would go to these punk rock clubs and new wave clubs. And, uh, for whatever reason, I couldn't get to work on time, even though we opened the store at 11 o'clock. <laughs> so eventually I got fired from that store. And, 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 and pa uh, pause real quick. Cause you and I both are Indianapolis natives. I live in Carmel yeah. now. I used to live here. Um, where were you specifically at this five? I grew up on the West side. I grew up on the West side of Indianapolis. I went to Northwest high school. There was a back then 38th and Georgetown wasn't so, I'm not going to say it's bad now, but um, you know, there was a lot of businesses around there and there was a store called crazy Larry stereo. Oh. It wasn't, it wasn't crazy Eddie's in New York. Uh -huh. It was crazy Larry's in Indianapolis. Okay. So that's where I worked. Um, I learned a lot there. I was pretty successful. I just, you know, was irresponsible. And I would, you know, if they would have had the opening hours at nine, I would have shown up at nine Oh five. But since it was 11, I was getting there at 1105 and 1115. And, mm -hmm. and, um, they eventually said, you know, you need to leave. <laughs> so, uh, quickly, I, you know, I had to move back in with my parents and, uh, the short story is I, got a job working for one of the very first video stores. And it was up there at 96 and Meridian. Mm. There used to be 
some stuff there. And um, it was called uh, Video Visions, I think. And, um, and so that was all about uh, selling first-generation VCRs to wealthy people in Carmel mm. and uh, renting videotapes. So it was the first time, you know, somebody that could plunk down 1200 bucks on a VCR, which was going to be a doctor or a lawyer or some wealthy person up there, and join a video rental club and be able to pick up airplane for the weekend and with their family, put a tape in and watch a movie. And so that is, was my first introduction to clients. Cause prior to this, the customers in a hi-fi store were all about, they were hobbyists. They were about specifications. You know, you had the battle against the competition on what the total harmonic distortion of the receiver you were selling versus the Dixie hi-fi across the street. And here, they didn't know about any of this stuff. They just wanted to plug it in, put a tape in, and be entertained. And the, that same customer also was very low technical uh, capability. And hooking up VCRs, for some people, just wasn't straightforward. And that introduced me to uh, clients saying, hey, I'm having difficulty. I'm 21 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, I can come to your house and hook it up after I get off of work. <laughs> and so I started doing that for all these people around Carmel. And then, you know, well, can I get it to play on another TV? And I would figure that out, go to Radio Shack, buy the parts. And then I started learning how to drill in a crawl space because they have crawl spaces in Carmel. And um, I was kind of doing some initial installation. But I really, 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 really wanted to work at a hi-fi store again. And so I bugged uh, a company called Hi-Fi Buys. They're now, they, they evolved into Ovation mm-hmm. in our market. And they were the thing. And I got a job there the same month that I was getting married. Mm. And so, I, you know, I got married. Uh, I got a job there. And I just dug in deep and became the top salesman at that store Mm. with all these veteran guys back then. We had seven stores. I was number two in the chain. Uh, They hired me because of my experience with VCRs and TVs because that was the next new thing Mm. that hi-fi stores were doing. So I was just a little ahead of the curve then. Um, Did that. The story could go on forever. But the thing that got me into custom installation was while I was working there and Bang & Olufsen had come out with the very first multi-room audio system that you could sell. What was cool about them was that they were like the only company that had a remote control for the hi-fi. And not only could you turn the thing on and adjust the volume, there was one button. If you press phono, the thing would come on and the turntable would turn on and the arm would come over. If you hit tape, then it would lift up and the tape deck would start playing. And that was cool. But they came out this, with this thing uh, called the Master Control Link in, I think, 83 or 84. And what it allowed you to do was hook up this seven-conductor cable and run it around to different rooms and hook it up to a box and then hook it up to a pair of speakers, and it had this little IR sensor and buttons 
that essentially allowed you to have music in different rooms in your house off one of your hi-fi. And for me, A, I thought it was magic. And B, it was like, mean I get to sell three more pairs of speakers to the same guy? Because it's like speakers are the most profitable thing. And uh, so I went ahead and installed it in our showroom. We had, you know, one room where the system was. And I said, okay, let's walk in this other room. And I would say, look, you can turn on the stereo. So imagine this is your bedroom or your family room or your porch. And um, I started to sell it to people. And then it was like, well, how are we going to install this? Because at the time, I really didn't know how to get wires around a house. I mean, it was one thing to hook up a coax to a couple places, but this was going to be more complex. And there was somebody right off of uh, Township Line Road that was remodeling a house, Jerry Carl. He invented Sensormatic, which was the sensors that prevented people from taking clothes out of Paul Harris stores <laughs> in Glendale. And then it went, and so all those tags, uh-huh. so this guy had all this money. Speaking about weed, he had the secret room <laughs> that uh, you moved the bookcase. And uh, I think he had a book and it was like, you know, uh, some psychology book. He did that and opened up and that's where he would smoke. Weed. Okay. So, um, so anyway, uh, he said, um, don't worry about it. Just drop the stuff off. My electrician will pull it all. So he did. I didn't know what I was doing. I said, pull it all the attic. And then it was okay. Time to hook it up. And I'm like up in the attic, sitting in this insulation and soldering all these connections together, oh, but it worked. I had music in four areas and then I just started evangelizing Bang and & Olufsen mm-hmm. and selling a lot of it. And to speed this up, I met somebody uh, who ended up being a mentor. His name is Ron Gerwig. He was the very first Wendy's franchise from Columbus, Indiana. He used to babysit Wendy. And wow. uh, he met me, and uh, we got to know each other. And one day I asked him, I don't know what I'm asking for. I don't even know how to ask it, but would you put me in business? Because what was happening was the hi-fi business was becoming really commoditized where we started to have Highland and Fretters come into the market and then people would show up with a newspaper ad and want me to match price. They didn't want to talk about, they didn't want to use my knowledge. Mm -hmm. They didn't want me to help them understand why they should have a Nakamichi cassette deck or this, that, or the other thing. It was more like, can you match the price on this receiver? Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, I'm not a clerk. I don't want to be a clerk. Uh, I like working with, you know, affluent clients and being their, uh, essentially their uh, concierge and then execute. And so Ron put me in business. I started uh, Tom Doherty's custom audio and video there on 200 West Carmel Drive in 1985. And then there's lots of history after that. But that's what got me into custom install. Um, that's when I became a Sonance dealer direct, um, audio access came along and that got me to then show up at January CES and June CES, um, because I was a business owner and I needed to see new stuff. And that's how I met Frank White and Chris Stevens and Dave Donald and all these people. And, um, pretty quickly, you know, after a year or two, you'd start to see the same people who were a, Oh, you got the same issues that we have, you know, manufacturers won't sell you 
direct Sony TVs or Adcom amplifiers or and so we just all got to know each other to the point where you know we were seeing this as a growing opportunity everybody's business was growing we all had the same problems and challenges and I became noteworthy because here's this kid from Indianapolis where do they even have electricity <laughs> and here we are in New York and in California and Tom's the number one Sonance dealer. And I was the number one Sonance dealer for a couple of years in a row in audio access. And so I had credibility with, with Ellie Dingberg at audio video systems in New York and, and these other dealers. And then, you know, when it was time to, you know, we really should form our own association. It was just kind of natural that I was a leader in that and helped put that together. So what, so that's a long story. No, it's a, it's a great story. <clears throat> and there's so much to cover there. You've got, got such a, um, such a history, but, uh, um, I, I, of course I got to the industry much later. I've, I, I jumped on, um, in 96 or so kind of touching on the industry from a distance editorially, but then launched the CD daily in 99. So that's when I really kind of fell in full on into it. And we launched residential systems in, in 2000. So, um, I was kind of playing catch up and I was specifically, um, told by a consultant who was working with us on our launch that I should look at other people besides Tom Darty and some of those original people, cause we needed to be different. So I'm going to admit to you now for the first time that the reason why I might've been weird around you for a while is cause some, some consultant who I really respected, told me that you were the old school and and now I, it's ridiculous now that i look at how visionary you have always been that that was the the advice but i saw the point i guess at the time and i was too naive to just you know say whatever i'll do whatever i want well, I, you know it's the fresh blood is always a good thing um that was one of the reasons why i didn't make a career being on the board not to disparage anybody else that did that but you know, I had been advised by somebody long ago who I respected at Sony, who uh, his name was Brad Kibble. He was a Lifetime Achievement Award recipient, uh, posthumously. Posum Posthumously. That? Yeah, thank yeah. you. Um, and um, I said, man, Brad, you know, we can ne you can never leave this job here. We need you. Mm -hmm. We need you as a connection to Sony through this custom channel. And he said, Tom, you know, it, you, you never want somebody in the same position all the time because you, you're not going to get fresh ideas that way. Or it's, hard, it's, it's more likely you're going to have fresh ideas if you can have fresh blood. So I, I stepped off the board, I think, in I, think, I think in 92 or 93. Mm -hmm. It's like, okay, I served for four years. Get some other people in here. Yeah. And then I got back on it in 96 and went to about 2000 and then got off again. But I, 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 I don't fault that person for saying, you know, Tom's sucking too much uh, oxygen out of the room, get some other perspectives, you know. And I also was a little, I've always been to some people a little controversial. Uh, I re recall that I remember Keith Rich being mad at me. Um, you know, he was president for a while and he was a real leader in the whole automation thing. And I had always been, a, apologize for this in advance, a doubting Thomas on automation. 
because I was always struggling just to make our client systems work and be reliable with simple things like AV. Mm -hmm. And I was like, I do not want to, you know, automate uh, life and death systems. Mm. You know, I don't want to be on, you know, if their security system doesn't work because of some failure or, or the, or, you know, trying to automate all these sprinklers or whatever it is, it's like, heat, you know, mess with people's HVAC. Yeah. This is back then. Sure. And so I said some things that were fairly negative about that. Mm -hmm. Whereas at the time, you know, those those newer board members and particularly Keith as the president of CDA was all about that. And here's Tom Doherty saying things negative. So a lot of people I even remember Julie Julie Jacobson she did an article on who the top integration companies were and, and left me off the list mm. and purposely said why I was off the list because Tom doesn't do home automation. Okay. And um, so, yeah, That's funny. I, you know, it, I, I, I don't always fulfill the narrative. Today's episode of Residential Tech Talks is brought to you by NICE, the global manufacturer of smart home, security, and building automation solutions. NICE is bringing together 30 years of innovation with award-winning products to create a holistic ecosystem for builders, integrators, and consumers. Learn more about how you can create one home with one solution at go.niceforyou.com backslash RTT. So speaking of changing and moving on what what was the uh, point or what happened that you left integration and left your company uh and became a co-founder of Eshent or were you co-founder well, of Eshent? I kept my company okay. I kept my company essentially the quick story is you know almost all of my clients my clients over the years my customers were mentors to me they were always um, successful business people, uh, got a lot of advice from them, looked up to them. And I had this one customer move into a house that I had wired who, and Scott Jones, mm -hmm. and he, uh, was originally from Indiana, but he went to Boston, MIT, and he and his team, he is credited with inventing or patenting voicemail mm -hmm. for the bell companies. So he moved in, I met him. I had been working on what we called tune base at the time. My brother-in-law and I, my sister, Nora had, had started a company that was building custom library management systems. So we had a computer and a touchscreen connected to, at the time, Sony had a 360 disc commercial changer. Pioneer had things, NSM had things, and we were making software that would allow you to, you know, access your CD collection and automatically play it. Way long story about that. Uh, but um, so Scott Jones moved into town. I met him and he was the first person that was a client that was a high tech guy. And uh, I kind of worked with him and kept him up to date and asked him for advice on this software thing that we were doing. And, um, and one day he, he was remodeling his house and let's talk about theater. Hey, uh, why don't you, I'll, I'll take you to a job. So we're going down 116th street. I pick him up and my car runs out of gas because <laughs> I'm just 
running everywhere uh-huh. and I forgot to fill up my car. And so we're on the corner of 116th and ditch mm-hmm. is what ditch, uh, Shelbourne, 116th and Shelbourne. And, uh, so we're standing on, I, call, I had a cell phone called my office says, you need to get a gas can over uh-huh. here quickly. But we were on, you know, he was, so he was kind of laughing about it. And then uh, we got, we finally got the gas. We, I showed him the theater of some job I did in um, Bridalborn. And um, when we got back to his house, he said, um, you know, uh, what was, what was significant about voicemail was the convergence of uh, telephony and computers. And, I see, Tom, the future being um, there's a convergence happening with the convergence of there's an opportunity happening with the convergence of the Internet and uh, entertainment. Mm -hmm. And um, I'd like to be your partner. So I got this guy saying he wants to be my partner. Hell yes. So we worked it out where we formed Eshin. Uh, with my brother-in-law and my sister, and we kept Tom Doherty Inc. Architectural Audio Video as a as a company within the umbrella, and then we just started leveraging his cash and um, and smarts in in developing and productizing what we were hand building, mm. and we you know he was there to help try to. At the time, uh, what was happening is fellow dealers around the country and my colleagues who were, you know, were doing Rush Limbaugh's house and Larry Ellison's house, they would sell them on this tune-based library management system that we sold to them. And then we'd get these complete CD collections of these people's collections. And then we would manually build these databases mm-hmm. because there's no database. Mm-hmm. So we would scan all the covers and we would type in all the tracks and titles and then we'd ship them back Mm -hmm. working systems. And, uh, so Scott was like, I think I can figure out how to automate this. So we worked on that short story is later we stumbled on a CDDB, uh, who, you know, a couple college students in Texas had learned that, Oh, you can play a CD in windows 3.1. You know, I got a CD-ROM on my computer in 1995, 96, 97. This is before Windows 95 comes out. But you put your CD in and you can play it through your dorm room speakers. But it doesn't tell you the name of the track or the album. And they're like, well, why is that? Well, because none of that information is on a CD. What's on a CD is a table of contents. So how many tracks are on that disc and how long is each track? Okay. And from there, they wrote an algorithm that allowed you, if you typed in the information onto this server, the next time anybody connected to the server put that CD in, it would auto-populate. And so they started to build this database. We got hip to them. We started talking with them. They were just students. And we were like, well, we want to buy it or we want to license it. And um, I thought I had this off. Um so, um, so we, so way long story, short story is Sony eventually wanted them too. Sony's approach didn't match their vibe. Ours did. Okay. 
It was funny. So we bought the company and I happened to be in San Diego at a Sony event mm -hmm. and Scott's calling me and saying, you need to find a fax machine because I need you to countersign this document because we just bought it. And then I later heard that the people that I knew inside at Sony were just like, when they heard they were turned down and we had bought it, they were like, and there's a lot of stuff that went in there. So <laughs> we, we, you know, I, uh, spent the majority of my time with Escient, but still we owned Tom Doherty Inc. And that was a continued going concern. Okay. And then ultimately, you know, lots of stuff happened. We spun off Tom Doherty Inc. Uh, Bain Capital ended up buying Escient, which was Denon Moran, D&M Holdings, yeah. bought our company. My brother-in-law who did all the initial work, Chris Commons, is still there. Oh. And now he's he was, he was acquired by Sound United and now, now Massimo. But Chris has been there since the time I recruited him from the Naval Warfare Center in Indianapolis in 1993 to come and help me figure out how to do this CD library management thing. And, you know, more and more stories. There's a million stories. <laughs> well, awesome. well, we'll, <clears throat> we'll catch on, on more of these at another uh, podcast, but we really need to get to the light of Palooza conference. Yeah, and, and, and I think that's, uh, that's really bringing us up to current day. And, uh, it's been a great, great conference. I've been to the, to the first, um, two, right. We've had two so far. Am I losing track? Yes. We had two. Yes, we two. had two. The first one was in Dallas, uh, February of 2022. An ice storm hit. And, it was, and, it was great. and completely by coincidence, at least initially, was that was happened 30 years after we did Cedia there yeah. at the same hotel. Yeah. And the slabs uh, were still there. Um, oh, yeah. And yeah, so the second one was last year. Okay. And this will be the third. Yeah, and, and the difference from an attendee standpoint, press person standpoint, was, um, you know, great evolution day, or show one to show two, and... We've got the third one scheduled and you've got an agenda out uh, with the schedule. I told you when I, we spoke recently that I was, I quickly scanned the days to make sure I had not been assigned a panel to moderate. Still willing to do it not if you yet. need me. Um, I did, did that last year. It was great. One of the highlights of my career was Jason Knott, my competitor at the time. Now he works with D-Tools, uh, told me it was one of the best panels he'd ever been to. And I said, well, I, I will make you repeat that several times throughout our friendship, but Tom put it together. I just moderated. So we'll really give Tom the credit on that one. But uh, yeah. So what, what do you, yeah. what did you learn from the last two uh, from all your feedback that you've put through the chat GPT um, to, yeah. to analyze yeah. and want to make this even better than the first two? Yeah. So the, the second one benefited from the first one attendees telling us, you know, what they really liked and, uh, and, and, and the attendees, meaning the integrators, the reps, and most and equally or more important, the manufacturers, and say, underwrite everything that ever happens in our industry uh, in terms of conferences and expos. And, um, and so the improvements that we made last year that people experienced were based on the feedback in the first year. This, this, so last year I had the benefit of... Um, 700 plus people uh, attending and sending out 700 plus uh, 
surveys and I got 200 back. And um, most, almost all of the constructive suggestions for improvement I anticipated because I was hearing some of it during the event. I mean, by and large, uh, people were really, really happy uh, and energized by the event. The things that we could improve on that we did improve on were just a handful, but one of them was um, make the courses descriptions or somehow convey that this course is good for somebody new to lighting. This one's an intermediate level. And, you know, we'd like to know about some advanced ones Mm -hmm. Um, because some people are coming multiple years and they want to, you know, take more advanced or more intermediate courses. Uh, We knew we're going to have some newer people. So, okay, these people have never been there before should, you know, have good descriptions and know what the course is about and the level. And they also ideally wanted us to convey who we thought it was good for. Because, you know, I'm looking at this, should I send my tech, my project manager, my lighting designers, is good for the owner, the finance person, who is this good for? Mm -hmm. And so we put in the descriptions, those sort of things. Um, So we have... We do have three tracks on lighting training or lighting design oriented training, beginner, intermediate, advanced. And uh, we went ahead and named some of the other presentations that were more business oriented. This is a business track. You know, how do you, you know, what are the metrics for this, adding this category and so on and so forth. Um, And... uh, maybe come back to the education. The other one was, you know, the manufacturers were like, Hey, we need lead tracking, you know? So, okay. We didn't have badge scanning last year. We need to have it this year. Mm -hmm. A lot of people were like, Hey, there weren't enough seats in the Mm -hmm. class I wanted to take. And so I was standing up and that one was unfortunate because we, we purposely said, okay, you need to register for a class. And then I would look at it and go, there's like 120 people registered for David Warfel's class. All right, let's make let's put them in a classroom where we have 144 seats, mm-hmm. and then 180 people show up. Yeah. So uh, this year again, we'll have we'll require registration and we'll have badge scanning and and for and I felt like one way to be more predictive of what's going to who's going to show up for the more popular stuff, or not necessarily more popular stuff, but I, I, I felt like, okay, we need to, uh, like at Cedia and like, like at these other lighting shows, and at, I've been going to AI conferences, you know, they, they charge something for a course. Mm-hmm. And so we decided that, okay, well, let's, have, let's just price this, you know, half or really low of what's typical. So, you know, some of the courses are $25, some of them are $50. David's doing an eight hour, uh, his team put together an eight hour basic introduction course, although it has hands on lab sessions in addition to lectures. It's limited to 48 seats. We're doing it twice. And that's $200, which is also about half of what um, like the ALA charges for their sort of thing. Mm -hmm. So trying to be 
you know, some people are like, hey, everything was free last year. And it's like, well, the first year it was $750 to attend and 225 people did that. Yeah. Um, last year we had a graduated increase in fees, depending on when you registered, they went from 100 and then in December they were 150 and in January they're 200 and in February they're 250 and people just kept registering. In fact, our industry, our expert professional procrastinators <laughs> yes. and probably 50% of the registrations last year happened in the last three weeks. Wow. So people, a lot of the people pay $250 this year. I've kept it. It'll be a hundred dollars to register all the way through November, which has ended and December and we'll, we'll increase it, um, in, uh, in January to one fifty. Okay. And we'll probably increase it again in, in February to some number. So those are the adjustments. The other adjustment we did was um, we've added power uh, at, in, at, for education mm -hmm. and additionally some power exhibitors. Um, and we, uh, because of the demand and interest in the channel or the show or this conference, um, you know, now we're at 51 or 52 exhibitors. And last year, maybe four of the manufacturers took 20 by 20s. And now we have like Lutron, for instance, is bringing a CDL level display and a 30 by 50 footprint. Uh, DMF is at the front with the 20 by 40. You can, you can go online and see a really impressive, uh, I'm very proud of the curated list of, of vendors that are embracing the CI channel now. I mean, it was, it's been years to educate the light, the traditional spec lighting industry that the CI channel was the future of their vertical. But I've been through that before convincing manufacturers 30 years ago, why custom installation was their was an important future and in, in a different vertical channel than traditional brick and mortar, especially audio video stores back then. Yeah. So. I, I like, I like how you use the term curated because um, as you explained to me in a previous conversation, you don't just accept any lighting manufacturer that wants to become an exhibitor. You really want them to have already made the effort and the investment in the Cedia channel and understand what custom installation uh, value there is versus just a the next company out there that thinks that this is the thing to follow, they've got to have actually put the effort and the investment in to be a part of this. Right. Yeah. And we're going to, we're going to continue that. Um, yeah. I've had, you know, early on, I was turning away people that, um, that didn't fit the profile. hadn't made the investment, um, really didn't have any visibility in our channel. Mm -hmm. And so, no, and then later on, unfortunately, I had to, you know, tell people, hey, we're, we're full, we're, yeah. we're sold out and, you know, we're not going to, you know, put people in the hallway like the earliest days of Cedia. There were, you know, the conventions back then, there was a time when Cedia was so huge uh, based on the spaces that we had. It's like, well, we can put you in the hallway <laughs> yeah. and set up a 10 by 10 there. So uh, we're not doing that. First and foremost, this is, I, I will endeavor uh, and work with people that help me with this, that this is first and foremost an, a, a, 
I'd like it to be more like a professional conference where people go to learn and hear from speakers and such Mm -hmm. and have an expo component as part of it, but it not being the tail wagging the dog where the show floor controls what this is about. I, I, I hope that to be. And to that end and keeping things curated, you know, we're going to convey to the exhibitors that are there this year. Okay. And next year, you're grandfathered in. Hmm. You can be here. And then any new exhibitors will form some sort of committee and they'll have to apply. And I won't get blamed <laughs> if they don't get in. It'll be some unknown hidden committee that does that. Yeah. Uh, but, we, you know, we'll come up with, you know, fair um, require, you know, fair way that where we make these judgments. But yeah. Um, not looking to grow the show floor for the sake of it. And really, you know, would rather reward these vendors who have invested in this channel for years and give them an ROI and not have the show floor diluted by just opportunistic um, manufacturers. And, and, but yet, you know, you've, <clears throat> you're evolving sort of the scope a bit with the power company. So explain why you feel like it's important to include some of those manufacturers of power products? No, that's a great question. It's a fair question. Um, I've had a couple manufacturers and I I wasn't anticipating this. I thought, you know, in my mind, I made a great justification for it. I thought, Um, uh, but I had a couple manufacturers go, okay, well, where's this going, Tom? Um, Are you, is this becoming Cedia? You know, is it TVs and speakers and everything else next? And I said, well, I, no, I, you know, yes, it's always been promoted as lighting, 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 and nothing but lighting. That's, that was a tagline for the first two years, um, being lighting fixtures, lighting control, natural light control. So, okay, motorized shade companies, lighting design services, you know, I, I did have um, catalyzing and one Firefly and Matt Bernath, the vital last year. And um, uh, there's a repeat of that happening this mm-hmm. year um, because they were, you know, their services um, are valuable to the channel and they were there to focus on helping the people that were attending there on their new alighting initiative. So that was, that's the primary thing. So saying all that, I, you know, having moved from the Midwest to California, I just started to, I mean, a couple things. A, I had seen Joe Piccarelli, I don't know if it was 15 years ago or how long ago it was at CDS showing Rosewater for the first time. And then, of course, we saw Sonnen a while ago, and then you see Savant Power. So you see that this is a new emerging category. It's been there for a while, but I had just a much more sensitivity and then at the same time, seem to be noticing a lot more interest in this. You see Ryan Downhauer uh, importing uh, uh, solutions that are power related. Jimmy Paschke's with them, Surgex, uh, TPD. And I think that power is where lighting was five or six, seven years ago in that we're, going to, we're starting to have more and more integrators look at this this category or thinking about it or wondering about it. I have a sense that what we need now is education. We need 
we need some fundamental electrical electricity um, education. Most integrators don't understand what a kilowatt or what a kilowatt hour is. They know what a decibel is, and even with lighting, what the inverse square rule is on uh, on uh, lumens based on ceiling height. They know all kinds of stuff now related to that. But power, you start talking to them about, they can't really wrap their heads around it very well. And it is, I, I'm convinced for a lot of markets, the next narrative to have down that is going to get you into jobs even earlier than what lighting does. Mm. And um, so I, I felt it's a foundational uh, category. It, it's a growing future category. It's a category that requires education. And we have some significant players that serve in our channel, like Savant Power, like, you know, uh, um, Rosewater and, and, and um, Bright Vault and on and on and on. So that's why I added it. And so that was my sense. So since then, um, registrations for sessions have started. And there's about 43 sessions, not including manufacturer trainings that are happening. And three of the top 10 most registered courses are the power related ones. So my gut, I think, was correct that uh, there is, you know, at least amongst the integrator channel that attends Lida Palooza, um, you know, or the for the most part, you know, the most advanced, most forward-thinking integrators. Those are the ones that are coming here. And that population has uh, made it obvious to me that that's an important topic that they want to know about. So we've created three different courses that are happening there. There's like a basic introduction to electricity. Then there's a panel discussion with four of these manufacturers kind of talking about how these things all interrelate. And then we have like a kind of a working case study on, you know, what is a power plan? What's the narrative? Uh, what do you need to know? Uh, what do the deliverables look like? Here's an integrator who's going to share what their process is, what their drawings look like, how these things price, what it takes to commission them. How do you talk to an electrician? What do you need to give an electrician to install this stuff? So, you know, um, I don't have any, you know, so we have outdoor lighting mm -hmm. and I've had some people say like last year, well, we have outdoor lighting. Maybe we can have some outdoor lighting demos and then we can have some outdoor TVs and some outdoor speakers. And, and, um, I have no intent of doing that. And, uh, and we want to keep it focused and then, you know, we'll get through this year and see what everybody, what the surveys say about how we did and what we need to keep doing, what we need to stop doing. Uh, well, I, I definitely agree that it's the next next wave to focus on in the industry. Um, and you don't think about it in its connection to lighting, but you can make the connection to lighting. And it's like the next wave after that may be healthy home. And even that you can make the connection to lighting because... Part of a healthy home is the is a um, is a healthy lighting plan, you know. So you are dealing with human centric lighting, that sort of thing. So it's funny how you can sort of say the emerging technology trends in the CI channel still can be 
associated with Lightapalooza without that name not meaning anything anymore. Yeah, I, yeah, yeah, and so I mean, I agree with you on the healthy home and the lighting part, but you know, it's kind of like I have Crestron, I have Josh, I have a Savant, I've got Control Four, I've got Basalt. There, they're all automation, or they have all control solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they all understand that you can only have things in your booth and really be your messaging can really only be about how your technologies, either what you specifically directly offer, like Crestron has a light fixture and they've got a motorized shade and they've got lighting equipment, but they can't have any DMX. Uh, they can't have any um, uh, video distribution or all their other stuff there in the booth. Yeah. And, and that's the same conversation, you know, Josh, you know, talk about how your system integrates with lighting control systems and shade solutions. Yeah and lighting fixtures. Mm -hmm. And so with uh, trying to stay and very difficult to keep people in the box, how do I, you know, I, I think, yeah, healthy home. So let's have some people, you know, teach and lecture and talk about healthy home from the lighting standpoint. But my, I don't want to have, you know, water purification and air purification at the show. Exactly. Uh, because then, you know, all of a sudden it's like feature creep. Yes. Um, now, you know, ultimately, I don't know how long I'm, I'm allowed to be the czar uh, <laughs> on this thing. Um, uh, but that's that's kind of, you know, at, while I'm the czar today, whether I'm that tomorrow or years from now, uh, that's my vision that... Um, I think the power thing fits under it um, in this way. Um, and I, I guess you could argue it from many angles, depending on what your position is, but the power. So a lot of, so the lack of real knowledge and expertise by a lot of integrators um, prevents them from really weighing in on some power decisions that happen on the projects where they're putting equipment in. Mm-hmm. And there's some things they can deal with, but, you know, what we're hearing is in some instances, you know, generators are getting installed as the client's power uh, belt and suspenders approach. If the power goes out yet, they're not being installed sometimes in a way that prevents them kicking on generating a square wave and knocking out the drivers in these expensive lighting fixtures. Mm. So there are drivers and things that are failing out there. So we think that this education is important and we think that it overlaps and is related. And we think that, you know, you, you can, depending on your position, you could have a bunch of different arguments right now. I'm sticking that power fits <laughs> in light of Palooza and, uh, and, and I am committed to not have it grow outside those edges. Well, and, and not that, this is ending on a, on a light topic at all, but AI obviously has been a big focus for you since, uh, this, the special session at CD Expo and then, uh, at HCSA as well with the continuation of it, the conference fall conference, which is an, an amazing content, uh, addition there. You've got some AI represented in light of Palooza as well. So, uh, make the case for that as well, other than it being the next big thing that we all just need to understand. 
how does it fit in with the lighting category and lighting? Yeah. Well, I, I'm, 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 I'm a little, um, aggressive when I listed that on, we, we do, you know, Ron is going to do an AI thing. I do have ESAR listed in the faculty. I, I'm not sure, you know, when I put this together, it was like, okay, yeah, we, we need to do some AI things. And I was, uh, and, it, and it's not that we may or may not still do this. My sense is that um, there's, that AI either with a lot of work right now, you can maybe do something to, I was thinking maybe by March, there will be uh, design tools that will allow you to do uh, some AI lighting layouts in an automated way or first passes. <clears throat> and so I was thinking maybe we can figure this out and do some initial demonstrations of where it is today where it might be going. Um, I've been working in the background here in my home office on some of these AI um, APIs and some of these GPTs seeing, I've been experimenting with taking large databases of manufacturers, fixture configurations, um, uh, lighting fixture part numbers are really, really long because they describe all of the variable features from housing type to trim shape, to trim size, to baffle finish, to trim finish, to driver configuration, to lumen output, to beam spread, to adjustability. It's like this, mm -hmm. like that. And um, I've been experimenting with um, teaching the AI how to read and interpret these codes. And seeing if I can say, okay, um, I need you to generate a fixture spec for five fixtures labeled F1 through F5, fixture one through F5. And I want it to be wet location, 60 degree, blah, 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 blah. And this one is da, 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 da. And now go look at this 100,000 line Excel file and populate it with the correct part number and the price. And if I get that to work, which I've been having, you know, two steps forward, one step back for a couple weeks playing with this on and off, um, these are there's there are th these are big time save. There's there's a lot th that you that you have to do and learn and manage, and you know, selling lighting is the easy part. Com not that it's easy. The hard part is project managing it, ordering it, commissioning it, dealing with the, the you know the construction site and so on and so forth. And you can go cross-eyed, and if you have any dyslexic tendencies in your body, in your brain, um, you can make some pretty uh, you know unpleasant mistakes because of these length of part numbers and looking at these things. So I, I know that AI will have an impact on the workflow for uh, integrators. And, and so that's what I was originally thinking when I was putting this thing together in July and then August, you know, we ought to have some discussions about AI. 
right now what's solid is uh, what Ron is doing on the schedule. And Isar and I are still trying to discover if we have something worthwhile instead of just waving our hands up on stage. Okay, that sounds good. Well, uh, even if you don't end up doing as much there, you've got plenty to keep people um, really excited and and, uh, occupied and learning. Uh, about the lighting category and Tom, I appreciate all this great retrospective stuff and also also the looking forward to the conference and uh, thanks for your, your time today. Really had had a good time talking. Thanks for having me. And I apologize to the audience for rambling on. Like I, it's hard for me to, I I tried to tell myself like right now, short sentences, Tom, but (laughs) I, I just can't do it. I can't. It's okay. You got a lot to tell. So thank you so much for sharing and, uh, and we'll we'll do this again, and we'll we'll cover you know that the other half of your career that we didn't even talk about. So, uh. okay, great. <laughs> Tom Darty is director of uh, HTSA Buying Group. Lida Palooza is scheduled for February 26th through 29th at the Renaissance Phoenix Glendale Hotel and Spa in Arizona. You can learn more about the conference and register at lidapalooza.com. And that wraps up today's show, which was produced by Residential Tech Today, IPW, and Pretty Easy Podcasts. You can check out prettyeasypodcast.com if you want professional and affordable production help on your own podcast. And if you're new to Residential Tech Talks, please subscribe to the podcast wherever you watched or listened to this episode. Also, check out all the latest residential tech news at our magazine's website, restechtoday.com, where you can also subscribe to the print or digital magazine and to our Tuesday and Thursday email newsletters. Until next time, please stay safe, stay inspired, and let us know if you have a great story to tell. This show was produced by Pretty Easy Podcasts and made possible by listeners like you. If you ever thought of doing your own podcast, please visit prettyeasypodcasts.com.